Welcome again to Door Creek and a special shout out to those of you up in DeForest. Maybe you're across the way in the chapel. Maybe you're watching or listening online or at our new campus on the north side of Madison. Good to be with you today. My name's Mark, one of the pastors, part of the teaching team. And it's a special treat to greet you. And as we've been focusing on the Christmas offerings this month, it's just good for you to catch up with what has been a pattern now. We're in our ninth year of doing this. And here's what we've committed to nine years ago. Let's not go crazy during Christmas. Let's spend less on ourselves so that we're positioned to give more to people in need, keeping the focus on Christ at Christmas and showing our love for God and God's love for all people. And so thanks for being a generous giver to our Christmas offering and knowing that your gifts to the offering is really making a difference to see the power of the gospel, the good news that we're talking about right here in this series on Romans, to see the power of the gospel transforming people's lives, renewing our city and through the partnerships that we have, the partnerships that we have in other cities like New Orleans and then changing the world by his grace and with his love. So we're back into Romans. And um, last week we were talking about this powerful benefit that we have through the gospel, and that is we have a standing in grace. And that grace isn't just like a little thing, it is a powerful thing. In fact, there isn't anything in our life that we're facing from the past, the present, or the future that has any kind of comparison to grace. Grace is greater than anything. That's what we talked about. And so this slide kind of reminds us, grace, God's grace which is all about Christ, the gift of God's grace. Christ is greater than anything from our past, like the failures, the regrets, the sins, the rebellion, all the things that, we, that, that brought us to a place where we're separated from God and deserve his right punishment. It's greater than anything we're facing, any challenge that we're facing, any temptation, any storm that we're going through right now, any dilemma that we're just going, what in the world does it look like to honor God in this? Greater than anything that we're going to face in the future, things that we don't know about yet and are uncertain about, things that we know exactly that we're facing in the future. God's grace is greater. And it's very likely, as Paul has been talking about God's greater grace, so where sin abounds, grace does even more. It doesn't just match it, it, it transcends it. It's very easy for us to assume, even though he doesn't say it exactly, that Paul goes into this next section because there are either detractors in the church going, hey, wait a minute, are you listening to what Paul's saying? Because if I'm hearing him right, he's saying, don't worry about the law. The law can't make you right with God. It's all God's gift and grace. And so what we hear Paul saying is, that, you know, grace is this kind of card that lets you just live like you want to live, and you can just sin, and it's all good because God's grace is greater. And there are likely some detractors who are claiming that and trying to undermine Paul's ministry and his message, but it's also likely that Paul knew the human condition, and that is that it's easy for us to take something that we know is true and can bank on, the greater grace of God over anything and everything that we're facing in life, and then to presume upon God's grace in such a way that we go, well, you know what, I know this is wrong, but God's grace is greater, and so it's going to be all good in the end because he's a loving, merciful, forgiving God. And so it's in this kind of thinking that we delve into chapter 6 of Romans in Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, just kind of to bring it to, to where we live today. Have you ever 
Have you ever been at a place where you're tempted, and maybe this is over time, you're tempted to compromise, you're tempted to do something that you know flat out, this is contrary to God's will, this is contrary to what God's character is all about and how he's called us to follow him, lives set apart for him, loving him with all that we have, our neighbor as ourselves. And, and we go, yeah, I know it's wrong, but man, it's just, I, I think, I think, I think it'd be a good thing for me to do this. And at the end of the day, God's going to forgive me. Well, you've probably never been there, but you know someone who has, right? <laughs> so what would you say to someone this week? I mean, a close friend, someone in your small group who says, hey, can, we get to, can we do coffee? And they start honestly opening up with this, this temptation they're wrestling with. Remember what they, the Bible calls the life of faith, a fight a fight of faith, and they're going, man, I, I, I'm in this relationship, or I have this situation, or whatever it is, and they go, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of going, I'm thinking of taking the fork in the road that isn't God's path. What are you going to say? What are you saying to yourself if you find, hey, man, I don't need to talk about hypotheticals about someone else, because that's right where I'm at right now. It's what my mind has been turning over. Can I do this? What are the consequences? And will God's grace cover that all? What do we say to ourselves? What do we say to someone else when we're tempted to presume on God's grace and say, you know what? I'm going to sin eyes wide open, and God's grace is going to be bigger than that. It'll cover me. I'm good. Grace is kind of like this wonderful get-out-of-jail card. What are you going to say? Well, let's see what God's Word says, because... Romans 6 is all about this very, very thing. So grab your Bible, Romans chapter 6. We're after the book of Acts, before 1 Corinthians. If you're new to the Bible, the table of contents will get you there. And in the sixth chapter that we're going to look at this weekend, we're going to note that the first 14 verses, the first half, is going to remind us that the way to navigate this kind of thinking and this kind of temptation where we would presume on the grace of God is to remember who we are and to remember where we've come from. And then the second half, remember who we serve and the commitments we've made to live for God. So verses 1 through 7 is where we'll begin in chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sitting so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. For if we have been united with him in death like his... We will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now look down at verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under the grace? Now, it's interesting. Both sections start with a very similar question. Is the gospel encouraging, allowing, 
encouraging us to sin and break ranks with God because it's so great. And his answer in both is very strong. It's a, no way. Don't go there. Don't even think that. He's very concerned about the audience's thinking, our thinking, because you know this, right? How we think and our attitudes lead to actions. And the actions, when repeated, become the habits of our life. And the habits define our character. That kind of wrong thinking is going to lead to wrong living that's going to get you right over the end of a cliff. And it's going to destroy you and ruin you. Don't do it, he says. Don't go there. Strong language. Strong because he knows the temptation is strong. Strong because it could be no further from the truth. The grace of God that sets us free from the power and penalty of sin in no way encourages us to sin, but to free us from that life, to live for God. And so it's this free gift, but it was a costly one. And so we can't fall short of really esteeming correctly and understanding the value of God's grace. It's not a cheap grace. This is not a stick of gum that loses its flavor and you throw it out. This is the gift of God's Son as we celebrate His coming this Advent season. He came to die. He died a real horrific death, hanging, suspended on a Roman cross between heaven and earth, that through His death and resurrection, we might know God. And so I want us to hear Paul shouting to get our attention as we would be tempted to think that because grace is so great, I can live like I want, and it's all good. So I want you to read Romans 6.1 here in the NLT uh, translation here, and uh, let's do that together out loud. You see it on the screen? Here we go. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace. And Paul says, no way! Don't even think that! By no means! Hear it! Hear it! As it's turning in your head, and you're starting to come up with rationalizations, hear it as you meet with your friend, who you know is going down that road. No way! Don't do it! What he says in this first half is when you're tempted to sin, thinking God's grace will cover it, remember who you are and from where you've come from by God's grace. So who are we by God's grace? Well, we are one with Christ. We are united with Christ. Our baptism that he's going to use as an example here shows about this profound union that we have in Christ. We are dead to sin, and because we're in Christ, we're made alive by Christ. So we're dead to sin, and we're alive to God and his purposes in this world. Who were we? Where did we come from? Oh, man, we were in Death Valley, so to speak. We were dead in our sin. We were deserving judgment, powerless to do anything about it, condemned. We were living in what Paul described as the reign of death or the rule of death, this period where death, destruction, marked and described our life, spiritually incapable of having a relationship with God, and all the pursuits in our life were actually deteriorating our hearts and our relationships with others. When he talks about our way of life before Christ, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, it's in powerful language. 
Here it is. As for you, verse 1 of chapter 2 in Ephesians. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Transgressions, just another word for sins. In which you used to live. You used to live in those sins. This is how you, how, how you lived your life. When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, speaking of the enemy, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's who we are and that's who we were. But by the grace of God, we have been made new in Christ and we are dead to sin. And so what does that mean? What does it mean that we are dead to sin? It means that we're dead to those sinful desires. It means that the power and penalty of our sins have been delivered because of Christ's death on the cross. He's talking about baptism here. And he's wanting us to identify through baptism this powerful truth of how we've died to sin and how we've been raised to new life. So he's talking about baptism and he talks about going down and being buried with Christ in his death and being raised like his resurrection to new life. And when we, when we go through baptism, when we have a baptism service like we just did a few weeks ago, what we're doing is following Christ's command. He calls us to be baptized and there's this profound identification that we have through baptism. Our faith is in Christ. Our relationship with God is through Christ and what he did on the cross and as he was raised to new life. And we're remembering that in symbol as we see someone get baptized. We're proclaiming our identity in Christ, our faith that what he did on the cross and what he did when he rose from the dead was for me. And what we're also saying is, and I'm going to follow that pattern. Just as Christ died for me, I'm going to die to the things that aren't of God. My old way of living, I'm going to die a death when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me if you want to be my disciples. That's what we're saying. I'm going to die to living for myself. I'm going to now live for God. Entering in the water speaks of cleansing, forgiveness. But entering in the water speaks of Christ's death and what he did for us. And it speaks about our desire now to die to ourselves that we might live to him. And so our death to sin isn't anything about taking punishment for our sin, but it's saying no. It's saying no to the temptation. It's saying no to the desires that sin would have. And verse 5 makes it clear that there's no sharing in the new life apart from our willing identity in the death of Christ and our also dying to ourself. And so... We have to die to ourselves in order to experience new life. Death precedes life, spiritually speaking. In verse 6, here's the fact, that when a person places their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, their old nature, their old self, the Adam stuff that we talked about last week, that stuff is crucified. That is, it's put to death so that those sinful desires no longer control us. And here's the caveat. They'll tempt us. They'll tempt us to give in, but they don't have the same power. We have new power, resurrection power. The same spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead lives in us. 
He has given us new hearts with new desires and new power to resist that and to live for God. So the power and the penalty of sin is no longer at play in our lives. Now, I want to appeal to you in this, that he is not in any way saying that we no longer sin because, you know, we've been identified with Christ and we've died to sin and so there is no longer any capacity within us to give in to sin. He's not saying that. In fact, when the Bible confronts that directly, like in James, Jesus' brother, it says, I think it's in verse 8, if anyone says he has no sin, James says he's a liar. The truth of God is not in him. In verse 11, he says, talking about remembering who you are and how we're to live our lives, count yourself, consider yourself, see yourself as dead to sin and alive to God. Consider yourself, meaning that's how you ought to think and that's how you ought to live. And if there was no possibility of ever sinning again because our faith is in Christ and, God, and God's grace has removed the possibility of sin, which he could have done, but he didn't do. There would be no reason to say, count yourself dead. So don't have that kind of thinking. And don't be confused if you're considering the claims of Christ and following him. Don't be confused into thinking that the life that you're choosing right now is one that you can freely do whatever you want to do. Because what he's going to say here throughout chapter 6 is, before God's grace set us free, we were caught up in this greater power, these sinful desires. Let me give you an illustration from a friend of mine. He was a teacher. He had a beautiful bride. They were rehabbing a house downtown Chicago. He taught high school, and he fell into an affair. He felt really, really bad about it, really bad about it. Didn't tell his wife about it but he went on a serious self-improvement program. He, he, can, he, he just knew it was wrong in his heart of hearts, and he knew if his wife knew, it would tear her heart apart, and he knew he needed to conduct himself in a different way. And so he worked really, really hard to not do that again, only to find out that he couldn't give into that, and it happened again. And I'm giving you the Reader's Digest on something that was a long battle, and it was this long, continued, vigorous effort on his behalf to get to a higher moral plane and to live up, not to necessarily God's value, although that was God's standard, but to live up to his own moral code, and he found himself incapable and it was that very thing that drove him in great humility to God for help. Don't ever, ever think that what we're free to do means that we're truly, truly free. The Bible is saying here that we're caught up in that. We're ensnared in that. We're enslaved. It's strong, strong language. But because of the grace of God, we've been set free, set free. Not only from sin and death, 
but to live for God. Look at verse 8 through 11. He goes on to talk about living for God. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. That is, he died one time on the cross for all people. Those who lived before us, those who are living now, and those who will live after us. Once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. So remember who you are. You are freed from death. You're freed from sin. And you've been made alive. You are united with Christ. You are one with Christ. Remember your baptism. Remember. Now, some of us, we we haven't been baptized. This might be a good reason to get baptized. Because what he's calling them back to is, remember your baptism. And I can still remember my baptism. On a Sunday night when Pastor John Wharton baptized me when I was a junior or so in college. I still remember that day. And that's the day when we publicly went through baptism in obedience to Christ, this external sign of what had already happened in our hearts by God's grace. We've been made, an, we've been made new and made alive. We moved from death to life through faith in Christ. And it's faith in his death. And we go down into the water for cleansing, identifying with the, the death of Christ that forgives our sin and identifying with this new life of now we're going to die to ourselves and we're coming up to new life, a resurrection life that is ours through Christ. Remember your baptism. Remember that. And remember, remember where you started because you were a goner and you couldn't do anything about it. You were completely incapable. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. There was nothing spiritually in you. Let me use another metaphor. There was nothing in your spiritual bank account where you could go, God, I'm going to bring this to the table. How's that? Is that good enough? Well, I'll bring some more to the table. We had nothing to bring. We didn't have a heartbeat spiritually. We were dead. We were goners. We were under God's wrath and judgment. And so that's it always, always, always keep us humble. God didn't choose us because we were better than anyone else. No, he chose us because he loved us. And we all stand on equal ground at the foot of the cross. It keeps us humble. Moving away to works that might merit God's salvation. That just turns the cross into a trivial thing. I mean, my lands, if we could just do enough good things and kind of pass the curve, so to speak, then then why in the world would God send his only son to die that horrific? Why would he spend his 33 years of his life to live here on this earth if it didn't really matter? Because all you need to do is try hard to be a better woman, better man, better student. For those of us Considering the claims of Christ, what we've been talking about here is the clear teaching that if you want to become a Christ follower, if you want to move from death to life, then you got to humble yourself. you got to say, God, I need a Savior. I need a Savior. And you place your trust in Christ. And you identify with his death, with his resurrection, that you would live for him 
and that you'd give your life away as Jesus did to all those that you are called to live with and to serve and to love. Have you done that? Have you moved from death to life, receiving the gift of God's grace, Jesus Christ, by trusting in him alone? So that brings us to the second half, down in verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are a slave to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So, in the first half, when you're tempted to sin, thinking God's grace is greater and will cover it, it's your get-out-of-jail card free. You're just going to put that on the table and keep playing the game, so to speak. Remember not only who you are and where you came from, but remember who you serve and what that looks like day to day. So in verse 15, same kind of question, a little different take, a little different angle that he's going to use here in answering the question, which is a flat out, don't think like that, by no means, no way, don't do it. You're under grace, so you can't do that. So he used a metaphor of slavery, and we got to catch up with the metaphor that he's using because it actually has historical reference that has nothing to do with our understanding of slavery in our nations in the recent history. So when we think about slavery, we about think about people who've been forced into servitude. Actually, in Rome, there was another category of people. They voluntarily became someone's slave, usually because they were under some really hard economic circumstances, and this was their means of survival. And the thing went like this. I'm going to become your slave, and I'm going to serve you and do whatever you've called me to do. You did it voluntarily. We're not used to that. That's, that's the reference he's talking about here, offering yourself to someone to be their slave. Now, we should know this, that slaves wasn't so much of a class thing. You could be an educated person and be a slave. You could be a doctor. You could be a lawyer and be a slave. Slaves were all through the Roman Empire at this time. So what he's saying here is this. The point of Paul's comparison is this. The sole allegiance that the slave has to the master. And whoever, whatever you're obeying, whoever you're obeying, that is your master. And so remember who you were before Christ. You were a slave to sin. But remember who you are in Christ. You're a slave to God. You're a slave to obedience, verse 16. You're a slave to righteousness, verse 18. So allegiance is demonstrated through obedience. And our allegiant obedience points to who's our master. Who's our master? And if Christ is our Lord, Paul's saying you can't have more than one master. You, you can't have Christ as your Lord and then go, well, on the side, because you're so gracious, I'm going to dabble in things that have actually the opposite of you. I'm, I'm going to go serve another master. You can't do it, he says. 
So in light of that, verse 19 says we're to offer ourselves to righteousness leading to holiness. And I love how Eugene Peterson translates this in his paraphrase, the message. I'm using this freedom language, he writes, because it's easy to picture. You can readily recall, can't you, how at one time, the more you did just what you felt like doing, not caring about others, not caring about God, the worse your life became and the less freedom you had. It's like the story I told you. And how much different is it now as you live in God's freedom? Your life's healed and expansive in holiness. And then I'll go on reading what he says in verses 20 through 23. As long as you did what you felt like doing, ignoring God, you didn't have to bother with right thinking or right living or right anything for that matter. But do you call that a free life? What did you get out of it? Or as we have in our translation, what were the benefits of living like that? Remember what, what that got you, where it got you? Peterson, again, nothing you're proud of now. Where did it get you? A dead end. But now that you've found you don't have to listen to sin, tell you what to do, and have discovered the delight of listening to God telling you, what a surprise, a whole healed Put together life right now with more and more of life on the way. Work hard for sin, you're a whole life, and your pension is death. For the wages of sin is death. I love his paraphrase. Work hard for sin, you're a whole life, and here's what you got in retirement. Your pension is death. But God's gift is real life, eternal life, delivered by Jesus, our Master. And so this is our identity, and this gives us security, that we are servants of Christ. We are servants of God, slaves of righteousness, sons and daughters who have the peace with God, who have a standing in grace, who have great joy and hope. This is our security. This gives us meaning and purpose as we live our lives this week. So... Where is it in your life where you're presuming on the grace of God? This actually is going to take some time. I mean, there might be something big going on in your life, and you're going, why did you have to say that? And it's just flashing. But actually, there's a whole bunch of us that are going to go, I don't know, but man, let me tell you about eight people I know about. I mean, they are seriously doing this right now. It's really, it's, it's really a hard thing because it's a heart thing. And Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful of all things. Who can know it? Which means I have a better idea going, figuring out what's going on in your life than I do my own life. And it gets trickier even this, is you could think that presuming on God's grace is all going to move into one category. I'm breaking one of his clear commands. I'm doing it wide open. I know I shouldn't do that, but I'm going to do it anyways. Well, let me suggest there's a whole other category. Like God's calling me to do something, and I know that clearly. Like I'm supposed to forgive that person. I'm supposed to give back to God because all that I have is from him and I don't own it. I'm a manager of it. But I'm going, no, I'm not going to forgive him. 
because they hurt me so bad. And you know what? I need this money, God, so you're going to understand. Your grace, your grace, your grace. You see what I'm saying? I mean, it works both ways. There's a lot going on here. And so what is the situation right now where you're being tempted to presume on the grace of God and cheapen the cross by just kind of thinking grace is a get-out-of-jail card free. Where is it? Is it in a relationship? Is it in this addictive thing that you're caught up in? We're going to file our taxes pretty soon. Is it going to be in something like that or your expense report this week? Is it going to be what I just mentioned, forgiving that person and extending grace to someone who's been awful in your life? Where is it? And how are we going to move forward? Romans 6 is clear. It starts in our mind. Be clear in your mind who you are. You are a daughter. You are a son of God. By his grace, you are dead to that. You're alive to him. Do not offer yourself to these things. Offer yourself and every part of who you are to God. Live this life of worship, worshiping God in all of life. And he applies it, interestingly, in chapter 6, right in the middle. So maybe you notice I skipped, right? So go back down to verse 11. We'll pick it up. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. This is a thing of the mind. Consider it. Reckon it. But alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's step one. Then there's another step. Therefore, do not let sin reign and rule in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather positively offer yourself to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. So think rightly. Don't offer any part of you from your mind to your attitude to any part of your body to any part of your actions and behavior. Don't offer a bit of it to another master, but offer all of who you are to God in worship to him. What does it look like to offer yourself to God? It means that you're offering yourself to others. You're serving them. You're doing justice, which means you're treating them not only as you would want them to treat you, the golden rule, for their image bearers of God, crowned with glory and honor, you're treating them for who they are, made in God's image. We're going to break the chains of injustice, not just feel bad. We're going to confront it when it confronts us. We're not going to take a pass. That's what it looks like. We're going to love mercy by extending it to all people. We're going to walk in humility before God and others. And so think, don't offer, do offer. And here's the deal. Every time we offer ourselves to God, we can at the same time offer ourselves to sin and death. And and here's the powerful thing about fighting temptation and sin. And it's true in Colossians 3, we'll give the same analogy of putting on and putting off. Right now, you may be like my friend who was just trying to stop, trying to stop. You need God's grace to bring you into this relationship. And you you keep offering yourselves to God. Like he says, in view of God's mercy, chapter 12, verse 1, 
offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. And when you do that, you can't do that. And some of us are just leaving here going, I can't, I can't, I can't. Don't worry about what you can't do. Remember what you're supposed to do because when you're offering yourself to God, you're freed from that. You see what I'm saying? Does that make sense? You can't do both. Jesus said it. You can't serve two masters. So offer yourselves to God. And here's the powerful thing that hit me after a long time of study. Right before today's message, I'm reading this, and I'm reading through chapter 6 again, and all of a sudden it hit me. It's all plural language. Don't try to do this on your own. One of the great graces that God has given us is his family, the body, to be in community. That's why we're always pushing, get in a group, grow in a group. Have people that are going to hold you accountable. But more importantly, have people that are going to encourage you and pray for you as you find yourself in these places. And oh, what a group to be in that this week in your discussion, you could actually be honest and say, this is where I'm tempted to presume on the grace of God. Because you got that level of trust. you got that level of friendship. That's what we long for for you. Because we can't do this. It wasn't meant for us to do on our own. And the last thing I'd say is, remember the cross. Remember the cross. Right now, we're going to get kind of cradle-focused. But the cradle is always pointing to the cross. The cradle's always pointing to the cross. So there's a great story I read this week about an archbishop who told the story about these uh, rascal boys, teenagers, who decided to kind of pull a prank on the archbishop, and they went in for confession, and they just had this ludicrous long list of sins that they'd committed. And it was just all a ruse and a joke, and so he went on along with it. The first one did it, the second one did it, and they ran out laughing, and then the third one came, and he did it, and at the end of his confession, he said this, young man, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to go to the front of the church. I want you to go look at that picture of Jesus on the cross. And then I want you to look at his face and say, you did all that for me, but I don't care that much. And I want you to do it three times. You did all that for me, but I don't care that much. And so the young man went to the front of the church and he looked at the picture and he said, you did that all for me, but I don't care that much. He did that all for me, but I don't care that much. And then he broke down and never got the words out again. And the archbishop telling the story said, the reason I know the story is that I was that young man. We've got to live our lives in the shadow of the cross. Baptism takes us back to the cross, his death. Oh, that we wouldn't be guilty of, in a sense, spitting on Christ again because we just belittle the cross as we continue to follow the desires of our weak hearts. By God's grace, may we be servants of Christ and point others to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, and we ask you, dear God, to help us live out our true grace identity in all of life. We pray for your mercy and forgiveness. 
for presuming on your grace, for forgetting the great cost of your sacrifice, Lord Jesus. Help us to live together in the shadow of the cross. That like you, Lord Jesus, we would find life in giving our lives away. Back to you, God, and in service to others. We pray these things in Christ's name for his glory alone. Amen.